linguistic <laughs> Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, like a lot of our fellow saloners, I'm discovering that once again, getting things done in the summertime just uh, seems to take a little longer than at other times of the year. Maybe it's just me, but I sure do slow down in the summertime. But two people who didn't slow down this week are Douglas S. and Jorge H., both of whom sent in really generous donations that most definitely help with the expenses here in the salon. So thanks a lot for the donations, Douglas and Jorge. They are very, very much appreciated. Now, if you were here with us last week, you know that I told you that today we would begin listening to a Timothy Leary workshop. Well, I've changed my mind. Not about the person we'll be hearing from today, but I'm going to play a different talk than the one I told you about, which uh, was his superintelligence seminar that took place in May of 1985. But fear not uh, if you had your heart set on listening to that seminar, because uh, I'm going to post download links to that entire unedited seminar along with the uh, program notes for today's podcast. And so if you're a major Dr. Leary scholar, you can uh, listen to it at your leisure. But the reason I'm not playing it here is that I think it's way too slow for a podcast. Now, this may just be my own bias coming out here, but I started working on the first tape and By the time I'd processed an hour of it, I realized that without the pressure of a time deadline, the good doctor often just rambled off in a dozen different directions and didn't always complete one thought before moving on to another. And uh, so a large part of what I heard was uh, mainly just good-natured give-and-take between uh, him and uh, the workshop audience. Now, the way I produce these podcasts is uh, to first go through a talk and edit out all of the uh, dead spots where somebody in the audience uh, might ask a long question that can't be clearly heard, and uh, so it'd sort of be a dead spot in the recording. Then I record my own comments and uh, kludge it all together, lay in uh, some background music by Chateau Hayuk, which uh, I should point out again is uh, compliments of my friend Jacques, who also appears as Poloka in my novel, by the way. Anyway, uh, after spending a couple of hours editing out all of the parts that made no sense without some video to go along with it, I realized that uh, I was intending to skip the final step of my process, which is to do a a final listen-through of the finished podcast. And (laughs) so I realized that if I didn't even want to listen to it again, then why should I put it out uh, as a podcast and force you to do it? Maybe I'm being a little too critical here, but uh, the end result is that I've found another talk by Dr. Leary that is, uh, at least to me, much more interesting, exciting, and upbeat. And that's what we're going to hear right now. Hopefully you have enough interest in learning how we got to where we are today that the talk about personal computers in this uh, lecture will be of some interest to you. So keep in mind that the talk we're about to hear was given in July of 1987. And at that time, not even a measurable percentage of people in this country even had a personal computer. And the web was still five or more years away. Now, I happened to be in the personal computer business myself uh, quite early on. In fact, my company was incorporated in 1980. Dynasty Computer Corporation, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. 
And uh, within three years, we'd made the front page of the Wall Street Journal and had a feature article in Forbes magazine. So I am uh, very familiar with the early history of the PC business. And I'm here to tell you that the good Dr. Leary was as far ahead of those times as any person alive back then. I know that it'll be hard to believe when you hear him describing what he saw as future tech, but that is exactly what the best technical minds of the day were also predicting. But what Timothy Leary brought to the table that us geeks missed at the time was the importance that this new tech was going to have on our great work of waking up the human holon. Let me just give you one more little fact to illustrate how far ahead of the times Dr. Leary was. At the time he gave the talk we are about to hear, the total sales of IBM PCs, and that is the total of all sales from its introduction in 1981 through the summer of 1987, well, it was less than 18,000. And the big name in home computers at that time was Apple. That's right, only 18,000 PCs had been sold by then. So when you hear him trying to convince the audience that personal computers were really the coming thing, well, keep in mind the fact that outside of Northern California audiences, there probably weren't more than one or two computer owners in the entire audience at most places where he was speaking. I know that thought is kind of laughable today, uh, and, and yet this talk was given just 22 years ago this month. A lot sure has happened since then, uh, particularly on the tech front, as you well know. Anyway, uh, enough of my reminiscences. Now let's uh, join the audience at The Stone on a San Francisco summer night in 1987. Hey, um, you, yeah. Really, there's no place in the world I'd rather be tonight, Friday night, July, than in San Francisco. Uh, the most sophisticated, cybernetic, psychedelic, amplified people around. <laughs> uh, now, we got to have a bumper sticker or a label or a title for our little uh, interaction tonight. We could try this one um, about the, uh, the cybernetic society of the 21st century. Uh, or how about... Uh, the emergence of the cybernetic person during the roaring 20th century. Huh? Yeah. That's you. <laughs> Actually, the hook uh, for uh, this season's uh, series of um, involvements is, of course, the Summer of Love. It was 20 years ago this season, 20 years ago today, that uh, the Beatles came out with that uh, album that really swept the world and kind of told everyone that there was something new happening. So uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of interest in, hey, what's happened in the last 20 years? And there's been a lot of reunions, which I'll tell you a little bit about in a minute. And um, it's so it's, uh, it's nice to kind of check up on what's happening. The question is, of course, why did the uh, Summer of Love happen in the year 1967? Well, uh, a good reason for that. Actually, the, the so-called 60s celebration and movement did start. It became visible in the year um, 1967. I think there's a good reason for that. It's demographic and it's arithmetic. Uh, see, the baby boom started in 1946. Now you add 21 to 46 and you get 1967. So to me, the, uh, the, uh, that summer of love was um, kind of a coming out party, a coming of age party of the first 
wave, the first year of the baby boom. And of course, um, it happened, it started, where else? It started right here in San Francisco. It was January 14, 1967, in Golden Gate Park, when uh, they had the first human being or love-in. Hey, well, what is that? You know, nobody ever heard that concept before. That was a new one. Um, and it was all very informal. Somebody asked me today, who organized it? I said, organized it? I mean, <laughs> there ain't no such thing. And the word went out over the rock stations and word of mouth. It was all around the Bay Area. And without anybody realizing what was happening, I don't know, what, 20, 30,000 people suddenly showed up on a, on a January day. That was pretty interesting. And uh, everybody kind of looked around and uh, said, hmm, there's a lot of people, a lot of uh, activity, a lot of action going on here. It was perhaps, I think, May, was it, uh, when um, the same thing happened in New York. They had a, a, another bee in there. They had about 50,000. Hey, it started building up. This, is, uh, this could become a habit. Then uh, uh, June 1967, that album came out. Now, most of you remember where you were when you, um, you lost your virginity or you gained your whatever you call it. Uh, you remember where you were when Columbus discovered America in 1492. Remember that. And uh, uh, short-term memory loss. <laughs> but I think most of us remember where we were the first time you heard that album. You picked that album up and there were all those funny pictures. And when you start playing that, you realize this was a signal. This was a statement. This was a, uh, a real um, um, basic... Um, positioning here that this was not just another rock and roll record it was not just love and june and moon this was a philosophic a poetic a, a social statement that something new was happening it was a concept album and above all people there, there are ideas in it made you think and hey what do they mean and so forth you know, how many millions of people spent how many wasted spaced out nights uh, trying to decipher and decode the meanings of some of those lyrics um, but uh so I would say the 60s really started in 67. Now, if it started in 67, let's uh, see uh, what happened. Well, okay, uh, 68, within nine months, this new movement of young people kind of celebrating individuality and, and indicating they wanted to change. And Dylan was saying, uh, ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. Within nine months, they had gotten rid of the president, LBJ. He just tucked tail and ran back to Texas, man. And the people went clean for Gene, and Bobby Kennedy came out for the kids. And then uh, 60, uh, 68 was the um, Chicago Convention, kind of shook everything up. The Democratic Party's never been the same since then. And 69, Woodstock. Can you believe Woodstock? 400,000 people on a weekend coming up to some farm in, um, in uh, New York State. That became the third largest city in, in the state of New York. Four or five hundred thousand people, uh, almost no sanitation, uh, no real good food, uh, taking God knows what kind of drugs day and night. And you know, there wasn't one recorded act of violence. Isn't that amazing? Uh, can you imagine four hundred thousand horny teenagers today getting together with uh, yeah, things are kind of. But it was a kind of a lesson. It was kind of a signal that hey, this is something new. Um, then uh, 70, 72, 73, Watergate. Uh, the 60s really, really didn't get going until the 70s. And I think the 60s peaked in the year 1976 when we elected as our president the ultimate hippy-dippy, howdy-doody Jimmy Carter. <laughs> uh, he was, uh, had a sleeping bag and he was uh, quoting Bob Dylan and uh, 
like you playing softball with Ralph Nader and talking about lust in his heart. Whoa, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the, in the grim uh, Rambo Pitbull Ollie North 80s, I, it seems kind of pathetic. That guy was talking about love and peace and, and he got uh, Sadat and uh, Begin to come over there and he got him in, in that uh, Camp David and he said, uh, come on, on walk, give peace a chance and all you need is love, Menachem, and you know. And uh, <laughs> they didn't let that happen very long. Uh, now, th- th- this so-called movement, see, what was happening was every summer a new uh, wave of uh, kids uh, became 21 and started joining the party. I think the whole thing ended in this country. In the year 1980, when we kind of hit that wall and elected as president, was it Nancy Reagan? No, no, it was uh, Admiral Poindexter. That's where the buck stops. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this movement that started here in San Francisco 20 years ago didn't stop in America. It kept moving around. By 68, it was in France. They called it L'Ete d'Amour. You remember those riots there? They closed the country down. And uh, it hit in Spain as soon as the old general Franco died. Uh, young peoples took over, and Hope and Playboy magazine was shown in public, and they legalized, uh, they legalized marijuana. You know, that, that idea of the summer of love, which has something to do with, uh, we ain't going to work on the assembly line, Maggie's farm, for the military anymore. We're going to work out a new uh, way of life with individuality. It's, it's still going around. Can you believe, for example, the uh, TV we've been seeing, you know, on news in South Korea? And that's something, South Korea. You know, this is a standard 1960s scenario. Here are the college students you know, in, in white shirts throwing flowers and, uh, and rocks. Uh, and there's the old Darth Vader, FBI, CIA, DEA. And there's the old classics. Uh, where'd they learn it? Well, you know where they learned it. Uh, South Korea is a cybernetic uh, television uh, culture. You can't have these uh, young kids watching television and playing rock and roll and listening to uh, uh, CD uh, records from America and from England. Hey, they're not going to let those old So I don't know what they call it in South Korea, but they got a name for it. And the interesting thing, you know, in South Korea, it's not political. It's not left or right. or It's, not, it, uh, it's, uh, it's generational. Also, how about this? In Japan, there's a new generation that's come up ten years later, born starting around 55. In Japan, these people are called Shinrin, Shinjin-rui. And the translation of that, now you're going to think I'm quoting from a Beatles album or from a poetry of Allen Ginsberg, the new breed, or new breed of human being. Now, what's this all, what's this new breed about? Well, I read about this, by the way, in Fortune magazine. Hey, get over there. These, um, the young Japanese are not going to scrimp and save. They want to spend money. They want to enjoy life. They don't want to work on, on Sony's farm no more. Uh, they, uh, uh, they're, they're hedonic. Can you imagine For- Fortune magazine talking about hedonic? Uh, and they, well, that means they want uh, Haagen-Dazs or whatever, but... Uh, but the real triumph of the summer of love, to me, this season at least, is of all places, Russia. You know, there's this uh, concept of perestroika, which means loosening up, and uh, glasnost, which means, uh, you know, uh, opening up and restructuring. And uh, uh, I don't know really what happens there, because we don't know really, but as I can decipher what's coming, you know, through in the press and the various uh, European press too, there is an attempt to... Um, to uh, 
get rid of the old guard uh, World War II generals and uh, they're going to reward, reward workers for what they do. Uh, you know, they got Stalin and Marx spinning in their grave. Uh, you know, there was a big, uh, there was a big uh, kind of a convention in Russia. They brought in scientists and, 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 and poets and artists from all over the world and they had a, a large delegation from America. But you know who the star of the whole thing was? Uh, David Sheff told me about this. Uh, Never mind, it wasn't necessarily the liberal senators or the, the distinguished uh, novelists. It was Yoko Ono. And there was a, um, uh, a personal meeting between Gorby. I love the New York Post. That's a right wing, you know. They call him Gorby. <laughs> well, Gorby, Mrs. Gorby uh, uh, met with uh, Yoko Ono and said, isn't it too bad that John couldn't be here? And thanks for giving peace a chance. And, uh, you know, I mean, now listen, me. <laughs> Yoko Ono couldn't get within 10 miles of the of the uh, Poindexter White House uh, where they uh, have music like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and you know <laughs> Frank Sinatra and so forth. So the point I'm making here is that uh, this uh, this movement that started here which was a generational which was I think was an inevitable historic moment movement has been going on and is still going on and every time every place you see a new generation of young people coming along uh, stressing freedom, individuality, loosening up the censorship, uh, down military, you know that the thing is happening. I wish we could get back in this country, but I think we will. Now, uh, I like, you know, I told you I've been having a few reunions in the last um, few weeks. I've been uh, around the country having kind of reunions with uh, some of the people from the 60s. Uh, in San Francisco, I remember a few months ago, two months ago, there was Dr. Benjamin Spock, Tom Robbins, uh, uh, Ken Kesey, uh, and uh, uh, about three months ago, uh, I had a reunion in Toronto, Canada, with Abby Hoffman and uh, Eldridge Cleaver. That was a hot one. <laughs> now, uh, I'm sure most of you have seen Abby. I mean, you know that Abby is simply one of the greatest orators of all time. I mean, you turn the fast speed forward, boy, and you just, you've got a rap. I mean, uh, Abby taught rap. <laughs> uh, he's got bandoliers of one-liners and cartridge belts of uh, facts and figures. I mean, boy, he just... Vroom. He knows how many uh, helicopters the Honduras government is using in Nicaragua. He knows how many gallons of urine is being tested by the drug testers. <laughs> Abby's got it. There's only one minor uh, fault that Abby has. Uh, no one's perfect. Um, Abby doesn't listen <laughs> too well. <laughs> but that's cool because, you know, it's, if, if he does all the talking, it's less for me to do. So um, if they'd asked me a question about drugs and Abby would answer, that's great. You know? <laughs> but then Eldridge got on the stage and uh, Eldridge, uh, you know, I go back so far with Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, gee, uh, we're more than we're like twins or genetic. Uh, we've been so many through lifetimes together. I knew Eldridge in 1968 when he was running for president. Uh, the Peace and Freedom ticket. He was running against, I don't know, he was running against uh, Nixon, yeah. Now, I think Eldridge would have then and uh, would now make a better candidate for president than uh, the most of them. You know, Eldridge can keep three ideas in mind. That's three times more than Reagan can. <laughs> so these three ideas back in the 60s, and then I was with Eldridge over in, in Algeria. We had a lot of fun there. Um, the three ideas he had were... Um, there's one enemy, and that enemy is uh, is uh, uh, racist, Christian, Wall Street, lacking running dogs of capitalism. Got that? Yeah. 
And there's only one good cause, and that's Marxist, Lenin, and I got that. Yeah. And there's only one solution, and you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem, and that's the, the barrel of the gun. That's where democracy starts. Got it? Yes, sir. Well, now, Eldridge from Toronto, you know, he's changed. He's a born-again Christian. <laughs> and uh, he's also a right-wing Republican. He ran for Senate here in California. Yeah, so uh, when he's talking about this, he's saying the same things. That now the enemy's Marxist, Leninist, and so forth, and you've got to line them up against the wall, Mother Flubber, and uh, uh, the cause is, of course, Christianity, and um, still the barrel of the gun. So you can imagine. Here's poor Abby Hoffman going crazy. He can't stand this. He wants to get the microphone back, and finally he gets the microphone back. He says, Eldridge, uh, it's an impossibility. You cannot exist. There's no such thing as a black Republican. <laughs> he says, You're an oxymoron. Eldridge says, What are you calling me now? <laughs> You're an oxymoron. You're a contradiction in terms, like military intelligence or <laughs> working press. There ain't no such thing. <laughs> Furthermore, I'll tell about this born-again Christian shit. <laughs> I asked my mother about that. My good Jewish mother said, Oh, no way, kid. I wouldn't do it again the first time with you. So, <laughs> Anyway, that was a pretty good uh, debate. Um, I've had uh, wonderful times with Hunter Thompson. And, uh, boy, he's, a, he's, he's really... Uh, now, if you want to ask questions about any of these guys later in the question period, I'll be glad to tell you more about it. Uh, the most interesting debates I've had uh, this year have been with a man who for five years was the head of the D-E-A-I. Now, when they called me and said, would you like to debate this guy? Would I like to debate the head of the D-E-A? <laughs> would David like to debate Goliath? <laughs> so, uh, Peter Bensinger. He's, by the way, he's a nice guy. He's a gentleman. He's, um, yeah, I'm sure he's an excellent administrator. LAUGHTER uh, and uh, he's a Yale man, but I won't hold that against him. <laughs> and uh, he's actually a very intelligent and a nice guy. Um, only one flaw on his thing is that he doesn't know a damn thing about drugs. It's kind of interesting, you know, that the military and the police and these bureaucrats, they live in a, a germ-free society. They live in shells of bureaucratic, uh, you know, uh, uh, boot-kissing. You know, nobody had ever... Talk to Peter Benson, head of the DEA. Yeah, he had he had twelve thousand agents and one hundred and seventy-two stations in seventy-nine countries, and no one had ever, you know, kind of challenged the insanity of his program. Yeah. Uh, so when I would debate him, he'd say, "Hey, hey, uh, Timothy, uh, sorry, but you can't say that." <laughs> I say, "Why?" He'd say, "Well, uh, that's, that's against the law." I said, "Well, not against the law to say that." <laughs> They call it debate, remember? So, uh, but this innocence of the bureaucrat uh, was uh, played to my advantage at the beginning because, uh, you see, uh, he would say things like in front of a thousand college students on a Friday night, get it? He would say, boys and girls, marijuana is the killer weed. It is an assassin of youth. It wasn't before, but now the marijuana you're smoking is ten times stronger. And everybody does what? <laughs> But he couldn't believe it, so it was. Uh, and, uh. Yeah. Thank you. You know, cocaine really works. Tooth that, and within seconds, uh, 
your heart beats faster and you start to sweat and perspire and your body feels warm and you have this incredible ecstasy and uh, uh, anybody say and that's when your heart's going that's physiological you know you get stand there and I said well, Peter uh, have you ever had an orgasm <laughs> uh, uh, maybe that's against the law <laughs> anyway um, and it's amazing listening to the head of the DA talk about the drug situation he would uh it's all uh, mainly marijuana and cocaine. He's not worried about heroin for some reason. Uh, he's not worried about the real killers, you know, pills and all that. He talked about killer weed and about kill, 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 lethal cocaine. Hey, wait a minute. Let's, uh, let's have some ballpark statistics here. Okay. Let's, let's, let's get the scoreboard out there, okay? They say there are 500 people a year that die from cocaine. Well, that's fucked. I mean, that's terrible. That's stupid. It's ignorant. There's no reason for those 500 people to die. Uh, bad education, you know. Oh, yeah, granted, there's always going to be, a, in, a, in a country of 200 million people, there are going to be 100 people that overdose on ketchup, so, but uh, we, can, we can cut that rate down to 100 if you just had uh, warnings on the package, you know. Like, the, the first thing, if you're going to educate people about drugs and cocaine is you should say, there's a total difference between... Uh, smoking base and uh, crack or shooting cocaine, that's the flash. And sure, that's, a, that, that gives you, that's like drinking a, a water glass full of tequila. Boom! No question. You get that hit and you reverberate. And uh, no que- yeah, your heart starts to do flips. And, yeah, all right, you're feeling good. But in about a minute, uh, it's all over and then you want more. It's like another uh, uh, water glass, you know, another chug-a-lug-a whole uh, fifth of tequila. Naturally. That's stupid. That's dumb. That's, uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, tuning cocaine is an entirely different thing. Uh, you, if you tune a little cocaine, then for about three hours you have some energy and you're feeling euphoric. And, of course, you're a loud mouth, talkative, obnoxious, arrogant asshole. But... <laughs> But you're alive the next morning. <laughs> and you're no more obnoxious than the average drunk or a born-again Christian, so we've got to live with it. <laughs> so, um, oh, you're talking about, um, yeah, that was cocaine. He said, now, if you want to talk about killing substances and killing lethal experiences that the American public is... Uh, is exposed to, uh, how about handguns? You know, 10,000 people a year are wasted from handguns. See, that's, that's against 500 with cocaine. Now, about, the thing about the handgun thing is that the victims aren't, these guys with the guns aren't putting gunpowder up their nose. They're killing their wives, their girlfriends, or any stranger in the street. So, uh, you're right about health of, uh, of America. Think about that. Or how about, uh, 50,000 a year uh, die from uh, drunken driving. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and of course, uh, again, it's not the drunken driver usually that's get wasted. You know, you ever hear that Al Davis, uh, Al Franken, uh, Tom Davis routine about the drunken Tom Davis is, uh, comes in, he's going to give you a lecture on, on drinking, and he said, number one, you should never drink. And, uh, number two, you should never drink and drive. He says, however... There are times when you're way, way out in the country and you've just been thrown out of a party by the host. So what are you going to do? You've got to drive, right? And he said, well, the rules are number one, don't drive and puke at the same time. <laughs> and uh, number two, uh, drive a, a big American car. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's, 
that's that's the that's the alcohol situation. Then you get uh, you get uh, what a quarter of a million people uh, dying a year from cigarette smoking. So anyway, uh, way way down the list of public health situation, you got AIDS, you got nuclear bombs. I could I could live. You got polluted water. I mean, you know, cocaine and marijuana. Oh, yeah, marijuana. Oh, I forgot all about marijuana. You know, I've got to confess you up in front, you know, I'm pretty brain damaged. Uh, uh, 20, 27 years aloft, uh, you tend to lose a few billion uh, neurons, but, you know. Uh, but uh, there are three uh, real side effects of uh, taking a lot of psychedelic drugs. Um, one is uh, long-term memory gain. I mean... You just you're overload me. You just you just conf- you're confused by too much, and the second is short-term memory loss, and the third is I forget. <laughs> but uh, I haven't forgotten about the deaths from marijuana. Yeah. Okay, the deaths from marijuana. Uh, would you uh, wire the uh, Smithsonian Institute? Let's get the public health. Get the United Nations, UNESCO. How many deaths uh, from marijuana? Oh, here they come. The new- Oh, here the record. Oh, yeah. Okay. In the 25,000 years of recorded history, the people have used in every climate have used marijuana as a uh, as a sacrament, as a religious experience, as a uh, hedonic experience, uh, as a Saturday night flash, uh, uh, as an adjunct to creativity. And for 25,000 years, there have been 12 known deaths from marijuana. We got to be scientific here, okay? Uh, <clears throat> There's an undisputed case of two or possibly four people that smoked a little too much marijuana and got the giggles and laughed themselves to death. <laughs> and then there's a case of uh, two or possibly four people that uh, they had bad hearts and they uh, had too much marijuana and they got the munchies and they ate themselves to death. <laughs> and a case of either two or, or three or possibly four honeymoon couples that got a little marijuana, got carried away and fucked themselves to death. So, uh, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, by the way, I'm talking about drugs. I must make it very clear uh, that see, there's only one place where I agree with the Reagan White House. It's a fruit loopy, nitwit, ring ding, brain damaged group of uh, of people in that White House. <laughs> they can't even remember. But there's one place where I agree with Nancy Reagan. You gotta tell your kids to say no. No. Uh, I got a 13 year old son, and I got uh, two. Uh, Teenagers, 14, 15, you know, and my wife and I do not want our, uh, our, our kids, uh, you know, uh, taking drugs. And God knows they're much more prevalent today than they were in the 60s when, or 70s, you know. Uh, everything's so young right now. 14, they're watching X-rated films that I never saw until I was 40 years old, you know. And, uh, so there is, a, there is a definite problem here, and the kids are so uh, depressed by uh, nuclear war and all that stuff, and there's no hope in the country anymore, so... There are a lot of reasons why any parent is concerned, or anyone's concerned, about kids taking um, drugs. But on the other hand, you know, the Reagan White House is such a pit bull nasty. You know, we tell our kids, say no thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, to, to Nancy Reagan, you know, the world, or America's filled with good-looking Slick, intelligent, faggot, Nicaraguan-loving dope dealers that are pressing all sorts of magnificent drugs on their kids. You know, would it were so? Huh? 
so I'm definitely, you see, when it comes, of course, when it comes to your kids, uh, we don't want our kid uh, drinking booze. We got an open bar there. He, anytime he wants, we could. But we, we talk to him about it. You know, we don't want him to for good reasons. We got the keys to the car and the kitchen shelf there. We don't want him taking the keys to the car. Uh, if I had a gun, you know, so forth. So, um, um, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's rather disturbing to me that of all the mothers or grandmothers in the world that have no right to be talking to young people about drugs, it's Nancy Reagan. You know, her two children, I know both of her two children, and, you know, uh, Patty Davis and Ron Jr., they admittedly took a lot of drugs successfully. Uh, and she, she was never very around very much, and she never obviously did the thing that any parent has to do or any friend has to do, and that is to um, sit down and eyeball and be honest and share it as a you know, problem and put all the support of the family and siblings and friends and, and church and school or God knows that you, you can't call in the National Guard. That's the one thing you can't do, Nancy, because that's what she wants to do. So uh, anyway, that's the, that's the say no thing. Uh, my position on drugs is, uh, it seems very commonsensical, it's pro-choice for an adult. If you're an adult American, you know, this is not, not communist China. Uh, if you're an adult American, you can decide uh, whether you can access your own brain or, <laughs> or who or what you put in your body. That's such common sense. And there's no way a government can stop it. Uh, so uh, that seems obvious. And of course, it's the, uh, the same crew that are going after women, you know, want to control what women do with their reproductive uh, structures and want to poke their noses up ladies' fallopian tubes are the same guys that are bringing us them. Uh, yeah, so pro-choice is the American way there. I must... Uh, now, i gotta got to really be tough here. Uh, I'm very much against addicts and drug fuck-ups. And I think we've all been through it with friends, and, you know, it's been hard on all of us going through the last 10, 15, 20 years to see dear friends just uh, screw up with uh, alcohol or with, uh, with drugs. Of course, you, you can always know who these people are, the ones that are going to self-destruct. You knew them in kindergarten. You knew them in high school. You know them all. You know who they are. They're hell-bent on having a flame-out. They can use booze. They can use sex. They can use gambling. And, of course, if you're going to have a flame-out, drugs is a really good way to go right now. So I do feel that we have to uh, intervene with every emotional and psychological and, and uh, spiritual and every, every, every energy we can muster to, to just intervene and keep uh, addicts, you know, get them. Uh. But, you know, the position there is uh, that uh, they're like diabetics, you know, because they can't handle uh, booze and no reason they should ban white sugar, uh, if you follow my logic. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm... Uh, the interesting thing that you know, puzzles me uh, and kind of irritates me that when the press and the government want to have drug experts dragged on the scene to tell us all about drugs, it's the fuck-ups. It's the addicts that are always on television telling you about their 30 years of lying in the gutter. Uh, they had some guy who was married 30 times and his marriage never lasted more than one night and he writes a book on marriage, right? <laughs> Or it's like the Pope uh, talking about uh, sexual conduct. You know, it's pretty weird. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's, uh, it's the problem of television. Andy Warhol predicted it. You know, it's, uh, everyone now knows how to be a spokesperson. So they, they, stick a, they stick a microphone in front of you. You speak not for yourself, but you speak for everybody. The kid will say, well, kids today don't like parents who? Well, I mean, what do you mean kids? I mean, you don't. <laughs> uh, 
It's that predatory pronoun. They say you or we instead of I. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, oh, David Crosby on the cover of People magazine. I've known David for 27 years. We all know David. Gee, he's he's a he's not a, an expert on drugs. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no one's perfect, David. But uh, and he's on the cover of People magazine. He says you. He says, you have only four choices. You will end up in jail. You will end up dead. Or you will end up in a mental hospital. Or you will. Um, uh, Kick like I did. Yeah, though. Um, that reminds me, by the way, of a, of a wonderful series of debates I had with uh, another old um, opponent of mine, G. Gordon Liddy. Is a, uh, uh, Gordon Liddy is a very interesting person. Uh, one thing that uh, you know you may not know about Gordon Liddy is he's a comedian. He's a he's like Buster Keaton. He's a he's a stand up. Uh, he stands up there and says the most incredible things. And if you get serious about it, he maybe frighten you, but He's really a comic uh, actor. Did you ever see him in Miami Vice? Uh, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, Liddy, is, you know, is a, he's a very powerful, uh, powerful uh, debater because he, uh, every time he comes on, he gets uh, starting his thing. He fumbles with a microphone, and then he says, I always have trouble with microphones. See, immediately. <laughs> and then uh, I remember I was uh, debating him, uh, and I was talking about this thing about, uh, see, Gordon Liddy has never had an unauthorized thought in his life. And he's like, uh, Ali Pitbull North, if his master tells him to stand in the corner on his head, he will do it, as ordered. And he has uh, never indulged in drugs. Well, Wes, there was one time when uh, I, I was commanded by my military surgeon to take an uh, anesthetic painkiller while I was in a military hospital. The pain left. I could feel the pleasure, and I requested my... Surgeon officer, please, sir, hold back the drugs. I'd rather have the pain than the pleasure. <laughs> oh, uh, I was talking about... Uh, Liddy's an easy debater, too, on drugs. He didn't know anything about it. But uh, I was talking about, you know, uh, these, these, these people that set themselves up as experts. Like I was going on about Dennis Hopper, who's uh, been a long-term friend of mine. Dennis, you know, how, you, how many of you seen Blue Velvet? Remember that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh... Dennis, you know, was one of the worst drug abusers in history. I mean, the Guinness Book of Records, he's right up there. I mean, he didn't screw around. Either. If you ever, you know, now, because all AA people, all people that kick, you know, they, uh, since they can't do it, they like to talk about it. <laughs> man, I was the worst man. Oh, man, I quart a tequila a day, man. Hey, man, give me that fountain pen. See that fountain pen? Two lines like that every ten minutes, man. That's bad. <laughs> and at midnight, man, we'd all take acid, man, and hold hands, and we'd feel love, man. But at two o'clock in the morning, man, we were at our dealer's house with a gun in our hands. I said, hey, Dennis, watch those pronouns, man. Don't say we, say I. Like Dennis... I was never at my dealer's house at 2 o'clock. And, I, and I've never had a gun in my hand. Now, if you want to talk about guns, talk to my friend over here, G. Gordon Liddy. Gordon Liddy walks up and said, Once again, my esteemed but brain-fried opponent <laughs> has erred both in logic and fact. I do not own a gun. No, shit. 
Gordon Liddy, that's like the Pope doesn't have a rosary. I mean, Gordon Liddy, that again. As a seven-time felon, federal law, and an ex-convict, I'm forbidden by law to own a gun. Mrs. Liddy, however... At last count, Mrs. Liddy had 37 guns, machine guns, fire and I'm going to go down the list of the whole 37. <laughs> and if Mrs. Liddy chooses at night to put three or four of these guns on my side of the bed, <laughs> and some pinko liberal faggot uh, Nicaraguan lover comes through the window and I blow him out the way he comes, well, I'm, it's, uh, that's a hard guy to debate with. I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Okay, now, uh, remember I told you about the roaring 20th century and the, and the cybernetic uh, 21st century? I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I see the roaring 20th century. You see, you've got to realize um, i got an advantage on you here. Uh, yeah. I'm 67 years old, see? That means I've been around for seven decades. And I tell you... <laughs> they've been... Uh, I don't think any question, we're talking about the seven most exciting uh, decades in human history. Boom, 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 fat, one wave after another. And I've been trying to surf them, and I've been involved in you know, so, uh, so I don't think in decades, you know, people talk about the 60s and say, don't talk. I mean, take the long view, centuries, yeah, and uh, there's a certain logic to the 20th century if you've been around it long enough. See, what happened in the 20th century started naturally around 1900. <laughs> I wish any Apple computer people here, they can check my my mathematics <clears throat> but around the year 1900 there were three uh, cybernetic psychedelic far out philosopher physicists who presented a new version of reality which happens to be the correct view of reality you know you had Newtonian uh, physics where there was this solid general motors world of force and mon- uh, momentum and energy and work and action and reaction, conservation, all that. Uh, sorry, sorry, Newton. I mean, Newton's great. But, uh, Isaac, you got to face the fact that uh, Einstein said at first, everything is relative. See, uh, that means that there's no absolute space and time and that I'm moving in a certain rate and in a per- certain direction. You are too, so that you and I can have uh, very different perspectives, but it all depends on your viewpoint. Oh, that's heavy duty. Because there goes the solid world of the Bible and uh, of all the fundamentalist religions. You know, it's, it's gone if you let Einstein running around loose. And uh, imagine, for example, uh, at the turn of the century, a typical American. Uh, you remember that, that painting by Grant Wood, uh, American Gothic, where you have that guy with a pitchfork you know, and his wife there. Or we'll call them Mr. and Mrs. Wood, Farmer Wood. And they can't handle his eye. What's this Jewish guy talking about everything is relative? We know it's not here. Well, he's making a lot of... Yeah, well, anyway, that, that's that. Then, though, comes uh, Max Planck. He says, uh, hey, uh, the reality from galaxies, stars, down to atoms and quarks, it's all made up, uh, not of solid, this is all temporary, temporary clusters of, of clouds of probability off on, quanta, that means bits, that the whole, you know, every time you put your, yourself, you're going to fall through a, a screen of quantum uh, information energy that's just bubbling around all the time. And I know that sounds like a bad acid trip. <laughs> But that happens to be the way the universe is wired at the moment. Now, can Farmer Wood handle that? Oh, he's getting a headache. Although it is true that they're bending light waves from stars around Mercury and they're getting the, 
you know, the atomic bomb going. So these guys are, you know, there's no question of it. Pretty soon we realize that they're not screwing around. And then Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg comes along with a real capper. He says, uh, everybody's reality is subjective, that your reality is determined by your sense organs, which are limited, of course, and by the instruments you use to magnify or extend the uh, sense organs, like microscopes, telescopes, so forth, and by the maps or the models that you use. So uh, you have to face the fact, Mr. and Miss America, you're making your own reality. Oh, I think that, that can't be handled. Get them back to Germany, right. And the problem was, too, that, you see, uh, these uh, physicists, they, they couldn't communicate. Why? Because they had to use a real paleolithic caveman device, uh, chalk on blackboard, so nobody could really understand what these guys were talking about. Okay, here's the situation. We know there's a new reality called quantum reality. Uh, it works. There's no question that uh, that's how the universe and that's how um, uh, atoms and whole, that's how it's put together. But how are we going to persuade, convince for us, ourselves, and Farmer Brown and Mrs. Brown, how can we exist in this world which seems so cold and, and hallucinatory and bizarre and weird and German and Jewish? Well, at those moments of human history where it's time for our species to confront a new reality, whether it's going from four foot to two foot or whether it's to make love face to face rather than, you know, whatever, there, there's a certain breed of human beings in every gene pool that come along at that time and make us feel comfortable. They explain, they personalize, they popularize what's really happening. Now, you know who these people are. They are the artists, the musicians, the playwrights, the poets, the mythmakers, the wizards, the uh, jugglers, the storytellers, uh, the uh, crazed scientists, the mischievous physicists. You know who they are. Uh, at every, every epoch in human uh, uh, history, these people come along and Homer, blind Homer, telling us about the, you know, go through the wine-dark cement training, go out beyond the pillars of Hercules. Oh, yeah, right, Homer, let's get in our boats and go out there, yeah. So, um, okay, it has been the obligation of all art and all poetry and all communication in the 20th century to package, popularize, commercialize, market quantum physics. And I start, of course, with the... With the um, with the painters, all oh, modern painting, when you come to think of it, is exactly quantum relativistic and indeterministic. Expressionism. You, you write your own thing. Change the Newtonian rep reproductive uh, representational uh, picture. Impressionism. Sheets of color. Pointillism. That's pixels. You know, Surat. These are just painting the way the eye uh, and the retina and the, and the computer graphic screen uh, you know, sees things. Uh, Dada. Surrealism. Uh, Salvador Dali. You know. Straight, straight Einsteinian uh, uh, physics. He has that, you know, that uh, thing about uh, the persistence of memory, the, the melting watches. Remember that? That's right out of Einstein. So, well, Farmer Brown saying, well, mother, these guys are making a lot of money, so there must be something in that. And, and uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, then, of course, the writers, all the writers, 20th century, it's stream of consciousness, subjective, gonzo journalism, call it what you want. It's all, you know, writing. You're not chiseling a marble. You're giving your own point of view. Of course, the real popularization and personalization of quantum psychology occurred about the year 1920 when a group of really genius uh, auditory engineers and acoustic uh, scientists came along of Afro-American descent. I'm talking, of course, about jazz music, which is perfectly, classically quantum physics. See, before jazz... Music is symphony, symphonic orchestra, you know, and then there'd be a director, get it? And there'd be 15 violins, and they'd all be reading the same notes and playing the same way, and, you know, 
and a soloist would read the line, sing line, it's real factory industrial assembly line stuff. And then Susan marching back, here comes jazz. Improvisation, don't talk to me, Heisenberg. There's Heisenberg on the clarinet. He's showing us how to make your own uh, music and everybody's uh, um, syncopating and you've never heard it played the same way before. And we can do it together. It's not that I'm a crazed solo person going on in my psychedelic uh, canoe up there. You're listening and you're going along with it and then you, then you take your improv and we merge them together. I mean, that's, that's quantum physics uh, put right out there for our ears to hear it. Hey, and then of course radio came along. You, you can't, none of us can realize what radio did when Farmer Brown and Mrs. Brown got that little uh, appliance and they started dialing and tuning realities, invisible reality, coming through the sky like wizardry. And uh, they loved it. You know, here's, here's Farmer Brown, and he's digging along here, and he's listening. He's eavesdropping, say, Hitler at Nuremberg, stirring up World War II. And Mrs. Brown, she's, or Mrs. Wood, she's crying because she's listening. At the moment, it's happening. It's like hearing Shakespeare, history being made. She's listening to King of England, giving up his throne for the woman he loved. Boo-hoo. See, see for the first time in history, millions millions of people could tune in on the same things going on at the same time. FDR declaring World War II and so forth. Uh, also, for example, there was, a, there was a radio program in the 20s and 30s called Amos and Andy. You ever hear that? Amos and Andy? My God. Everybody would stop on Friday night for a half hour. The theaters would close and everyone would get, get around the radio and these two black guys in the Fresh Air Taxi Company and the fellow Osbury Gusted and all that. What it meant was they were all listening to the same thing at the same time. Never in human history had more than a hundred or maybe a thousand or a few thousand people attended to the same signal. Now you had millions of them doing it. So that meant that we were, what you're doing here is you're creating a new species of people that are harnessed by electromagnetic quantum physical stuff that, that old uh, Eisenberg and, yeah, yeah. I would have believed that farmer Grant Wood and his wife, who are down-to-earth practical farm folk, would accept as reality Shimmering, shivering, jittering little uh, figures projected on a screen called movies. Well, gotta tell you, not only did they accept it, Farmer Grant would love it. See, for the first time, think about it. Living in his uh, Kansas or Iowa farm, he'd never been in the room with a real glamorous, good-looking, well-dressed woman. And here's Clara Bow with her lips big as this, and she's licking her lips and looking right at who knows you, yeah, Farmer Brown's flipped out of his mind. And here's, here's Mrs. Wood, she's looking at Rudolph Valentino, put the eye on her, I mean, boy, turns out that human beings love quantum, cybernetic, speed of light information. You know, don't talk to me about chiseling on a marble thing, or don't talk to me about books, but human beings, the human brain turns out is a quantum Einsteinian Heisenberg uh, instrument. It's been designed over four and a half billion years with a hundred billion uh, neurons. Each one has the computing capacities of a big, big Macintosh. And we got a hundred billion of them there. And it's waiting to have this equipment turned on and booted up and activated. And that's what the, uh, that's what the quantum physical roaring 20th century is all about. You got World War II and then you got... Uh, uh, then, of course, you got television. Wow. Television. Who would believe? In your own home, you got the little appliance, this quantum physical uh, Max Planck appliance, and you just dial, and then suddenly 
there you've got um, optics and color and so forth. Um, boy, people took to that. The average American family, seven hours a day watching the boob tube. Now, that's scary. All of us have really pondered and wondered and worried about, hey, is DNA code going to finally leave us in the lurch? Are we going to become a race of uh, idiots uh, with our amoeboid tentacles, you know, glued to the junk food coming out of ABC? I mean, is that, that four hundred four and a half billion years going to lead to that? Um, you remember uh, 1984 by George Orwell? Uh, his worst nightmare was that Big Brother would have a screen in which he could watch you in your living room or your bathroom or your bedroom. Now, well, he could, oh, he could always kind of get around the corner. But what Orwell never dreamed of was that in America and throughout most of the world today, people voluntarily line up in front of the boob tube and become vegetables. Scary, isn't it? Well, um, that was a scary situation. But it always happens uh, in the history of evolution of life on this planet. You know, the life's been around for you know trillions of galaxies and trillions of go-rounds. So there's a, uh, the life planning situation is not a novice here. When it's time for something to happen, it happens. And the thing that it really turned the 20th century around and saved us from becoming a nation of boob tubes happened. This was, gave birth to it not in a manger in Bethlehem, but in a garage in Silicon Valley where St. Stephen I and St. Stephen II brought forth the ultimate home quantum cybernetic appliance, the personal computer. And they called it Apple. I love that. I, 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 I talked once to Steve Jobs and another time I talked to uh, Steve Wozniak and I said, when you call it the Apple, were you thinking about, you know, that scenario in the Bible about, you know, where the heavy-duty... Uh, Jehovah says to Adam and Eve, you know, um, y- y'all can do anything you want in paradise here, but there, there's only a two, uh, there are two rules and regulations. The, um, see that fruit of that tree? That's a controlled substance. Uh, y'all are not supposed to have an apple from that tree because that's the tree of knowledge. Get it? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, uh-huh. As soon as uh, God got in his squad car, you know... Uh, it was Eve who went over to the apple and like the logo of a great company took that bite out and anyway um, that was 1976 when uh, the apple uh, came on that time came on just exactly when we needed it it's almost like the timing is almost precisely when you think about it of course the uh, the uh, psychedelic drug movement of the 60s and 70s helped because you can't take a species which has a hundred billion neurons packing around in the skull, but who are, who are imprinted and socially conditioned to, to package knowledge in the form of, of marble tablets that God put down, what was it, 15 commandments and lost five, or whatever, you know, or, or, uh, or the printed book, you know, they used to all that, and they used to, to, to talking and thinking in lettered words, and they got all this equipment up there. And, I mean, how are you going to get them to boot up the circuits of their brain and get, the, get them used to uh, dealing with, um, with bytes and bits and kilowatts of uh, all sorts of information? How are you going to get them ready for the computer, you know? How you get them? You don't have the IBM. They just become robots. Huh? How are you going to get people to really harness up their nervous system to the computer? Well, obviously, uh, there are a lot of receptor sites in the human brain, and every neuron has got a, uh, a little a little lock there that can be opened by a certain uh, uh, chemical key, 
And what you saw in the, uh, I think the late 60s and the 70s was an inevitable kind of historic thing that uh, people have got to get used to uh, the fact that the universe, uh, according to quantum physics, is uh, psychedelic and it's moving and changing and it's all <laughs> multi-level and all, talk about altered states, uh, Einstein. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, uh, and uh, it was interesting, too, that when we first started studying uh, psychedelic drugs, I'm not talking about the body drugs, the euphorants and the pep pills, I'm talking about psychedelic drugs, which, which expand consciousness, you know, and overload it and so forth and confuse it and all that. Uh, when we were first doing our research at Harvard, you know, we had no language to discuss it. We went through the textbooks of Hinduism and Buddhism, and everybody did. They were all running around with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, any, uh, you know, half-baked yogi and occultist came along with some new... We sat down and listened to it. Gurdjieff, Crowley, you name it. We wanted to find out, well, hey, what's going on here? Because Western psychology has no words for this stuff. And eventually, we finally caught on. We started working with art engineers that work with light. And remember, we'd have, we, we would have uh, an anatomical movies of cells going around. Then we'd play some rock and roll, and then we'd have some slide projections of your mother on top of it. They're trying to get some feeling for the uh, multiplicity and the complexity and the, uh, I'm sure they're good computer terms for the enhanced uh, high resolution quality of the human brain stuff. But, uh, so this whole new uh, uh, art form of uh, special effects and Lucasfilm and, and Kubrick and so forth, you know, uh, it's all part of the same roaring 20th century getting us ready to deal with reality, what it really is, which is uh, clusters of on-on bits. So, uh, uh, how, how long have I been talking, huh? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You want a little more? Should I go on? Should I go on? Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, uh, well uh, now, one thing that, that you know and I know, that uh, there's no one today, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but can you tell me one politician, one statesman, one columnist, one writer who can give you a clear blueprint of what to do for the next 15 years? Huh? Benjamin oh, Benjamin Franklin, bring down lightning. I can go for that. Uh, you know, they got, uh, the, uh, you got the four-letter words of the Republicans, Dole, Bush, Kemp, and Bork. <laughs> and you got the seven dwarfs of the Democrats and... Uh, those guys just don't understand. It's a whole new ball game. And the first time anyone comes around and tells things kind of in a, you know, really what's going to happen, uh, people are ready to listen. I'll tell you, there's a hunger. There's an absolute uh, void. Uh, uh, people are desperate for some scientific, logical, common sense blueprints of what we can do and what's going to happen. And I'm looking around, and I, I've uh, run into one uh, set of interesting uh, speculations uh, where, naturally, in science fiction... But not science fiction of the future. See, you think about the science fiction that we used to read in the 60s and 70s. That was really pretty conservative. You had uh, uh, the Princes of Dune, and you know, and Princess Leah. Give me a break, uh, you know, uh, Lucas. And uh, it was a kind of a feudal situation. The Empire strikes. What the Empire? What are you talking about, man? Uh, and Heinlein, he was an old. They're all kind of engineer types, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of hardware, and beam me up, Scotty, but Captain Kirk is a government employee to me, I mean, <laughs> another Marine out there, you know. Uh, the point I'm making is that there was no sociology, no economics, no culture, you know, they were still going around playing World War II games. There's a new genre of fiction, it's called cyberpunk, how many of you know about that? Uh, uh, 
it's, it, it's an inevitable movement. See, the things, when, you, when you think about it, it, it just it was time for a new generation of young people to write science fiction. They'd been up through the 60s and the 70s and listened to rock and roll. They weren't going to go for Captain Kirk and they weren't going to go for uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's. Uh, so uh, the science, the, the cyberpunk uh, writers, Norman Spinrad is one. There are a lot of them. Uh, Bruce Sterling. Uh, but the man that really has kind of caught all of our attention is a man named William Gibson in, uh, in uh, Vancouver who wrote a book called Neuromancer. And it's, it's about science fiction book about the world could be in 20 years. It's a real down, gritty street wisdom. And the hero of the book is like a, a punk hustling kid who's a computer hacker and cowboy and he, he can go into cyberspace and he's rustling uh, AI stuff and he's got a, he's, uh, got a drug habit here he's fooling around with and he's down in the streets of, of Tokyo hustling. It's, uh, uh, and uh, I've read three of the Gibson's books about ten times each. He wrote Neuromancer, Count Zero, and a collected uh, book uh, called Burning Chrome. And a certain philosophy is there if you can you did because Gibson would laugh hey man I'm just writing you know amusing stuff for you to read he would de- decline and deny the role of prophet but he, he really is laying down a, a theology and an economics and one thing I've learned from Gibson's stuff is you know see the world in Gibson's uh, uh, books 20 years from now you don't hear much about America and they're vaguely Russian either because vaguely Russian America oh, they became second class countries and you know they spent all their money in arms and they started so that finally the world is really run by uh, by Germany and Japan and Switzerland who kind of stepped in at one point apparently and said to Russia and uh, America hey uh, we can't allow this you simply can't go around building up arms and blowing things up you can't blow up America because we own it <laughs> <laughs> uh, nuclear war is bad for consumer business. See, so. And the uh, funny thing, you see, I'm naming you former Axis countries. Kind of interesting. The worst thing that can happen to a country is to win a war. You know that. World War II, boy. Yeah, tell me about it, Ali and Poindexter. Tell me about it. Yeah, we won World War II. Who's we? Russia and America. <laughs> kind of funny, isn't it? And poor England had the poor luck to be dragged along and be a victor. Because the victors, number one, their military leaders were not discredited. Eisenhower and Haig, right? And all those Russian generals with acres of uh, medals. Anytime you see a grown man dressed up in a uniform with ribbons, you know you've got a psychotic case on your hands here. <laughs> and it doesn't help that the, the turkeys are armed to the teeth <laughs> with a pit bull mentality. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the problem with Russia and America, that they're simply spending all their energies in, uh, in war and military and CIA and the KGB. Meanwhile, the poor losers. Okay, Germany, Japan, and Italy, their military leaders were discredited. Hitler is not a joke. I mean, he's an absolute abhorrent. The name Hitler, you're never going to get on a uniform, you know, with that. Or in dreams of tomorrow, the rules, you get out of here, Adolf. See, uh, Germany went right to work making consumer goods. We didn't allow them to have guns. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. We bombed all their factories. They start new factories. Same thing happened in Japan. Uh, we wouldn't let them have any military. We totally discredited that whole Tojo dreams of Nipponese empire. No, sir, we're not worried about that. We're going to conquer the world with consumer goods. 
that you Americans and Russians have forgotten how to... Because, you know, if you've forgotten, the individual human being doesn't care about big nuclear guns and tanks. The individual human being wants things to enhance her, his intelligence and make him feel good or make her a little smarter or make life a little more comfortable or give a little class or fashion or a sense of, of consumer, gourmet. I'm in control of my life and I'm not a victim of the, of the Soviet or the uh, American faction. I'm trying to say, you know, you get the picture. Uh, now, in this world of the future that um, Gibson's vaguely talking about, it's like, it's like a vague blueprint. You have to fit in your own uh, picture. Uh, it's really quite uh, liberal in the sense that uh, of the Italians, too. Mussolini. Oh, give me a break. The Italians are notorious bad soldiers. You know, sometimes... Uh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're credible soldiers in an individual thing, but they're not good at lining up for some cause. And I don't blame them. It's a great thing. What? Yeah, well, I'll go for that. I mean, that's an old motto. I've heard that before. So, and the Italians are doing fine, you know. It's by, oh, they can't run a country. They have, they have a government. The government's changing all the time. Good. That means the bureaucrats are changing all the time. But somehow Italy's working without the bureaucrats. It's amazing. So finally we catch on. It's the governments that cause all the fuck-ups. If you get the military and the government out, and the old... <laughs> it's, it's, it's so corny. It's a lot... It's the psychedelic, cybernetic, hedonic law of supply and demand. People want certain things that kind of healthy for them to have, you know. So anyway, that, and it's very liberal because see this, the big companies, the international, multinational combines that are, they don't run things; they're just kind of keeping everything moving. They don't care uh, what drugs you take or how you fuck or what kind of magazines, as long as you're a good consumer. The uh, the main. Uh, the main thing I'm saying is, of course, the old motto of uh, 1776 and 1966 of uh, uh, think for yourself and question authority, TFYQA. Uh, but it doesn't do any good to think for yourself if you don't know how to think. And if you're using marble tablets to think, or if you're using the uh, alphabet of 26 meaningless uh, letters to think. Uh, there's a French school of philosophy called semiotics, and uh, they come out with some interesting... By the way, do you know that the French, and many of you in the audience come from Silicon Valley, but the French have a, have a computerized telephone system called Minitel? See, the, apparently, interesting, we learned from the French. The French didn't have a telephone system a long time. De Gaulle would not allow it. You know why? For many reasons. Number one... The French felt, the French man felt that if he had a telephone at home and he went off to work or went to visit his mistress, his wife would use the phone to do you know what. So as a good man, he could go out of the house. He didn't want his wife to have a telephone. Secondly, uh, uh, when a bell rings, you have a servant ring. So the idea that the bell would ring and you'd pick it up would be in your servant. See? So also, you couldn't control information uh, if you had a telephone. But same thing in Moscow. Uh, there's no telephone uh, book you know, in Moscow, a city of you know, 10 million people. But anyway, now, uh, since uh, Gestang, they now have a, a Minitel system where uh, most every home has a telephone, which is computerized in a little screen. And people are going crazy doing uh, networking, you know, uh, these computer networks and being very French. But 40% of all of the telephone bills and all the computer time that's racked up is in, uh, they call it, message rows, I mean, uh, sex messages. So... Um, the French are uh, a little uh, are a little ahead of us in this uh, in this computer thing, and in the philosophy too. The French semiotic people, people like Marcel uh, Foucault, have taught me something very interesting. They say 
Never mind about politics or economics or religion. It's language that controls society and controls the individual. And who controls the language controls everything. Parents control the language, therefore they control the kids. The literate, educated control the illiterate and the uneducated. The rich have the language, they can control the poor. Those that have access to television, uh, radio, printing presses. If you control the language and the technology of the language, you control the minds. It makes a lot of sense. That's the downside. The good side is that if you can learn how to use the knowledge technology, the language technology, then you are armed with uh, defenses that it's the ultimate revolutionary tool, a new language. Rock and roll was a, was a new language. Amplified sound was a new language. And of course, we owe it to, uh, to Jobs and Wozniak and the Silicon Valley people. The personal computer allows you to do exactly what these French philosophers say we got to do, control your own screen. Now here, everyone's sitting there watching seven hours a day screens and going off to movies, MGM, ABC, Oh, come on, they're controlling our minds. The solution is not to turn it off because you, then you've given them the Einsteinian quantum physical power. We've got to learn how to change the screens. And that's where personal computers come. And that's where new uh, software comes. And uh, unless you can control us on the screens in your own TV, in your own uh, home, you know, okay, uh, then you're going to have, see, within two or three or four years, compact discs interactive compact is where you can store dozens of films or videotapes or Dan rather the news throw in your x-rated movie home movie you made last night uh, you're going to have all this uh, digitized sound in your CD uh, library where you can make your own news you can make your own 10 best uh, items of the uh, of the week you are the director the producer the editor of your own screens and that's just as obvious and logical to me as when Gutenberg produced a book, then we, the human individuals, could, could, uh, could write, which was illegal under feudalism. The same thing is happening. So the, the real uh, message that I get from the 20th century is learn how to be cyber hip, cybernetic. Learn how to deal with electrons. And, and, and of course, the keyboard's finished. We owe it to the Macintosh and those guys at Xerox Park. You don't uh, get rid of that Phoenician alphabet keyboard using gloves and mice and, and joysticks and so forth. Uh, literacy, literacy, my friends, is the oppressive chains of the educated middle class. Yeah, uh, literacy. You got to get away from those books and uh, controlled by the printing press and the and the uh, highfalutin intellectual. I've written enough books to destroy several forests of trees in Canada. I plead guilty, but yet. Uh, and by the way, when you learn how to, to, to move electrons around on screens and move and store compact disk stuff, you can still read, you can still curl up on in, in the beach and read and well, to your heart's desire. You're not giving anything up. You're adding a tremendous dimension to your, to your mind and, your, uh, and your, uh, your skill. Okay, now, boys and girls, is that a locker room pep talk or what, huh? Uh, okay, yeah. How many of you want to hear about Hunter Towns? Yeah. He's a local boy. He does a column on Mondays. Well, I love Hunter Thompson. You know, I've never met Hunter. I've never met Hunter Thompson in all these years. But uh, the mad programmers of this... Uh, what? Anyway, uh, I, I was in a deal in, in uh, Seattle, Washington, about two months ago in which they had uh, 
don't know who thought this up. It was like a debate or a tribate between Abby Hoffman, Hunter Thompson, and myself. Now, I've read all of his books many times. I love his books. I follow his exploits as Ambassador Duke in Doonesbury. He called me a couple of times, uh, although we never met. I'd get phone calls late at night, about three in the morning, from someone who said it was Hunter Thompson wanting uh, dangerous drugs. Uh, and I had to tell him to fuck off. But, uh, but I don't think that could have been Hunter. No. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I met him in, uh, in Seattle. I'll never forget. He came down the, the, from the plane and man, he had a paper bag in one hand, he had that cigarette with a holder, and he had that baseball hat, and he said, let's get drunk, Timmy. And, so, so, uh, and then Abby came off the plane with a bandana like a, uh, like a rustler. I looked at these two guys, and for the first time in my life, I felt like the squarest guy in the house. So, I'm out of my league. We're talking ma- major troublemakers here. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, there was a press conference. The press conference, of course, uh, I showed up, and then Abby showed up, and finally Hunter showed up, and he started drinking whiskey, and, that the press take it very seriously and say, well, Mr. Thompson, what do you think of the college students today? Generation of swine. <laughs> well, Mr. Thompson, what do you think of the college students uh, 20 years ago? Generation of swine. <laughs> when it came time for the lectures, 8 o'clock, boy, they love, you know, Hunter Thompson is an extremely popular person in this country among young people. He's a Fabulous, places like uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Fabulous. You don't really realize how popular and wonderful. It is. Anyway, it's an enormous crowd, and about time to go. Ten of eight. I said, "Hey, let's go." And I went down to Hunter's uh, room, and Hunter's on the phone talking to someone named Tony, telling Tony to get his ass over there. Something about an eight ball, so I couldn't follow that. And then it turned out that Hunter had suckered Abby Hoffman into a hundred dollar bet on the Houston Sonics or the Rockets uh, basketball game. And shit, it's only in the, like the second quarter. They're really, these guys are not going to show up at that lecture. So, But I think, good. Because the only chance I'm going to have to talk is if I get there first. So I went to the studio. Get me over there. Beautiful, beautiful backstage thing. And I got out there and I said, well, I'm like the warm-up for the Joan Rivers show. And I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what I have in my mind. And after about 20 minutes, they come in and Abby gives this incredible talk. Oh, yeah. Boy, stem whining and kicking ass at the CIA and all that. And, then Hunter got up there, and Hunter kind of mumbling, and he said to me, Hey, Tim, has Tony come? I said, what? Tony, you know, Tony. Well, I don't know. He said, well, go outside and see if Tony's in the back room. So I walked up there in the back room, and, well, Tony had definitely come because the air was all blue with some resinous smoke. And uh, I said, uh, Is there a gentleman named Tony here? <laughs> Guys, come here. He took me down this hallway and uh, he pressed a small envelope in my hand and he pushed me into a men's room. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm basically a scientist. <laughs> and furthermore, as an older person, I thought it was my duty to protect young fellows like uh, Hunter Thompson from any dangerous substance, so I did uh, make a kind of a scientific test of it and uh, came, came bounding back into the room and then Hunter left and Hunter came back and then that was the end of the debate. It was just boom. I mean, uh, but uh, Hunter is uh, really one of those people that is uh, greater in person than his reputation, which is great. So, yeah. There's no excuse for a human being in the, in the 21st century to accept any helplessness or impotence or passivity uh, blaming it on genes or whatever. It's up to you. You've got to take pilot control 
of, uh, of your own life. Now, if that isn't a fucking pep talk, locker room spellbinding, uh, rabbi, priest talk, uh, go for it. I'll see you in 20 years. Thank you and good night. Ladies and gentlemen, the 21st century man, Timothy Leary. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Yeah, I can still remember the first time I heard Sgt. Pepper. It was on vinyl and at a going-away party three days before my friends and I left for a tour of duty in Vietnam. But that's a story for another day. And no doubt you have a story about that album yourself. Although uh, a good many of our fellow saloners weren't even born yet when Sergeant Pepper hit the streets. So I guess you'll just have to take the word of us dusty old farts that that album probably did as much to change the world of music as Elvis did. But enough looking back, uh, our job is to keep moving forward, so let's press on. Now if you've been listening to the most excellent podcasts of the Dope Fiend, which you can find at dopefiend.co.uk... You know that there is a raging debate going on about the current potency of cannabis. So I know that you picked up on what Dr. Leary was saying about uh, 17 minutes or so into his talk where he told the audience about the then-current DEA scare tactic about the increased potency of pot. I guess it doesn't occur to these knuckle-draggers in the government that if the potency is higher, we use less, just like most people don't drink whiskey in the same quantities as they do beer. But wasn't it interesting to see that about every 20 years or so, they recycle their bogus arguments about cannabis? I guess that's what frustrates me the most about this insane war on people who use plants instead of patented pharmaceuticals. It's the fact that these ignorant drug warriors think that we're as stupid as they are. But my question is, uh, hey, what happened to all of those young people in the 80s that uh, Dr. Leary was just talking about? Did they get sucked into the system too? Well, I think we know the sad answer to that question. So that uh, leaves you and me to pick up the pieces and uh, keep the show on the road. And, in fact, uh, that's what I'll be doing for the next two weeks or so, going on the road. So I'm afraid that you won't be hearing from me again uh, here in the salon until the middle of next month. Uh, Unless, of course, you happen to be fortunate enough to be able to attend the Oracle Gathering that is uh, going to take place from July 31st through August 2nd. Uh, and there I'll be conducting a, a little workshop from 7 to 9 on Saturday night, just uh, just before the main event begins, uh, which is a night filled with music, dancing, and uh, a few other surprises. And if all goes well, uh, I'll be playing uh, part of that workshop uh, in a future podcast. So for the next few weeks, uh, you shouldn't expect much activity from me on uh, Facebook or thegrowreport.com or on my new website, which you can find at uh, www.genesisgeneration.us. And I'm not going to uh, be able to be checking my email at all, uh, but since I'm already about six months behind in my email, uh, that won't make a whole lot of difference, I guess. 
But I do want to uh, thank our fellow saloners who have either uh, sent or offered to send some uh, lost McKenna recordings. I most definitely will get back to uh, each of you as soon as I can, uh, hopefully next month sometime. But I do intend to take you all up on your offers, and uh, over time we should be able to hear uh, a whole bunch of new McKenna material. Now, as much as I dislike doing this, I'm going to uh, have to point out that there may be some confusion brewing about where I'll be making public speaking appearances in the coming months. To be exact, there are only two places where I'll be speaking, and one is the Oracle event, which you can learn more about by going to Oracle Gatherings, that's gatherings plural, oraclegatherings.com, and the other festival I'll be attending is the Symbiosis Gathering, and I'll say more about that at the end of today's podcast. But the event I will definitely not be at is one that several saloners have asked about because uh, apparently the promoters are using the Psychedelic Salon's name in their ads. Now, I know that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, but it can also breed confusion. Now, back in June of 2005, just, uh, just before I posted the first podcast from the salon, I did a Google search on the phrase Psychedelic Salon in quotes. And uh, on June 10th of 2005, there was not a single hit on that phrase. And so I decided to uh, use it as my title. And uh, just now I did the same Google search and discovered that there are now over 17,000 instances of that phrase being used on the web. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not at all upset by the widespread use of the phrase. In fact, since I'm a lawyer myself, I could easily have trademarked it. But my personal opinion is that no one should be allowed to have the exclusive use of common words. And so I didn't worry about some big company trying to edge me out and take over the name. But it never occurred to me that uh, somebody I knew would appropriate for their own fundraising purposes. And so I was really taken aback when I started receiving emails with links to an announcement for a MAPS fundraiser that is titled Book Launch and Psychedelic Salon. Now, since my own book hasn't exactly taken off yet, it <laughs> well, it really hurt my feelings to see that Rick Doblin was using the salon to push somebody else's book to raise money for maps. And I know what you must be thinking. Uh, old Lorenzo is just getting cranky and doesn't want to help maps, even though they never bothered to ask if it was okay to mislead some people into thinking that they would be attending a live session of the salon. And I'm sure that general grumpiness is part of it. But since Rick and I have been associated since even before he started MAPS, I thought that at least he'd give me the courtesy of a heads up, but that didn't happen. And so I now feel compelled to lay out the entire story, dirty laundry and all, for everybody to hear. There's hardly a week that goes by in which somebody doesn't send an email asking uh, why I haven't done any promotion for MAPS since uh, my last podcast of one of Rick's talks back in September of 2005. Well, there's a good reason for that. And although I've kept my silence here in the salon for all these years, I feel that now I must make very clear that I am no longer supporting MAPS and that I have no affiliation with them at all. In fact, my wife and I even stopped making our nominal donations to them after uh, Rick dismissed a critic some years ago by saying he didn't need that person's support because the guy was only donating $100 a year. Well, that really turned me off, but uh, it isn't the reason I no longer support them. My reason for no longer supporting MAPS is that they continue to fund and support a DEA informant, who, uh, in fact, is probably more responsible for the disappearance of LSD on the street than anybody else I know. And that DEA informant, that turncoat, that government snitch, is Dr. John Halpern. 
I don't know about you, but there is no way I want to be associated in any way, shape, or form with a DEA informant. And by the way, this isn't just my opinion. I know for a fact that most of the top-tier speakers who were scheduled to attend another conference that MAPS is planning all backed out because Halperin was also on the program. And it was only after Rick promised that uh, Halperin wouldn't be there in person but uh, would only be piped into a small side room through a video link that they even agreed to speak again. And if you want to read all of the glory details of Halperin's involvement with the government, which resulted in 95% of the acid supply drying up and the main chemist being put in a prison cage for two life sentences, well, I'll post links to uh, several lengthy articles about it that were written by John Hanna and uh, by Eric Davis. But even after all of the grief that Halperin has brought to our community, MAPS continues to give him large sums of money that generous people have donated to them. And I simply cannot go along with that. And so for several years now, I have very quietly been avoiding the whole scene. And had they not used the salon to bait and switch people into another plea for money, I would have continued to be silent about my feelings about MAPS. I know that a lot of good people are associated with that organization, and I wish you all well. Of course, uh, I do hope that the ultimate mission of MAPS is never realized, uh, because I also don't think that it's right to uh, try and get a patent on the medical delivery of LSD and MDMA and other substances, uh, and that's what Rick hopes to get an exclusive on. To me, uh, the desire to patent the use of our sacred medicines is as obscene as those corporations who are filing patents on our genes, or like Amazon's claim that they alone have the right to one-click buying on the web, as if some grammar school child couldn't have come up with that idea. Okay, enough ranting. As far as I'm concerned, this chapter is now closed, and uh, so please don't try to engage me in an email or other discussion about maps. I'm moving on now. Case closed. Well, I guess that uh, since I'm already on some kind of a heavy trip or something here, I should also mention something that a number of our fellow saloners who have been listening to my novel, The Genesis Generation, uh, have had some problems with. Uh, in it, uh, one of the characters tells about uh, five of her friends who recently died, three of which involve the use of our sacred medicines. And the question, of course, is uh, whether or not this is based on fact. And, sadly, uh, yes, it is. Now, I'm not going to get into it here in the salon, uh, at least not for now, because uh, there's enough discussion about drug safety in my book. But what I do want to point out is that, yes, there is most definitely some physical danger involved if you don't use these medicines properly. And all it takes, of course, is uh, a little reading at arrowwood.org and some common sense. You see, two of those deaths involved using a psychedelic in water and drowning. It seems obvious, but uh, you'd be amazed at how many experienced psychonauts still use these substances in bathtubs, jacuzzis, and swimming pools. And if you want my opinion, uh, anybody who mixes psychedelics with large pools of water is just plain stupid. And that little comment will probably cost me a few friends, too, but uh, that's just the way I feel. And one of the other deaths I mentioned in the book uh, involved mixing several different substances with alcohol, and uh, then the woman passed out on her back and drowned in her own vomit. Not a particularly nice way to begin the next phase of one's eternal existence. So even though I extol the virtues of a psychedelic experience, I hope that you don't think it's all fun and games. Uh, this great work is serious business. But, uh, of course, I doubt that many of us would be involved in this work if it also wasn't a lot of fun. 
So, hey, just be sensible and uh, think before you swallow, because uh, once you take the red pill, there's no turning back. But speaking of fun, in a few days, my wife and I will be heading north on our way to the Oracle Gathering, which is going to be held at Dragon's Spear Park in Washington. And if you go to uh, Oracle Gatherings, that's gatherings plural, oraclegatherings.com, you'll find a listing of over 30 musicians and DJs who will be performing that weekend. Also, there is uh, going to be a community featuring around, uh, I guess, about 20 or so different workshops, not to mention the artists and performers who are also going to be participating. As you can tell from my general grumpiness today, I really need to get away and recharge my batteries with some input from what promises to be a fantastic gathering, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing a lot of my friends there again. Now, if you can't make that event, there is one more festival that I'll be attending this year, and uh, if you can make it, I think you'll find that you are in the right place at the right time. And I'm speaking about the fourth annual Symbiosis Gathering, which will take place near, but not in, I should add, but near Yosemite National Park in California. And it's going to take place from September 17th through the 21st, and uh, they also have a packed agenda. For starters, you'll be able to hear an incredible amount of music, in fact, you can go to their webpage and you'll find that there are over a hundred musicians and DJs listed, along with uh, links to their MySpace and Facebook pages where you can get to know them a little better before you go to the festival. Also, there's going to be quite a few workshops and lectures there as well. I'll be giving a presentation there myself uh, sometime around 5 o'clock on Saturday, but you'll also be hearing a little from me all day long as I will be the MC for the day. And just to give you a little idea of who some of the other speakers will be, they include Daniel Pinchbeck, Starhawk, the famous physicist Freehof Capra, and uh, Allison and Alex Gray, among many others. And you can see the full program at their main website, which is www.symbiosisgathering, S-Y-M-B-I-O-S-I-S-G-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G, symbiosisgathering.com. And I'll put the links to uh, both the Oracle and Symbiosis Gatherings uh, along with the program notes for this podcast. So between now and the end of September, I hope to be able to meet a lot of our fellow saloners in person. And I know that if you're going to Burning Man, you must be saying, What the fuck? Why did Lorenzo cancel on us but is going to these other festivals? Well, it isn't because I don't love you, and it isn't because I don't enjoy the Burning Man Festival. But going to the burn is a very expensive undertaking, and when I first planned on going there, I had the fantasy of my new novel becoming a bestseller overnight. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, I'd been using too much of my own medicine. Now that uh, reality has firmly taken hold, I've been forced to realize that, uh, for a while at least, I'm only going to be able to attend festivals where I can get some of my expenses paid if I sing for my supper, so to speak. I wish things were otherwise right now, but uh, I'm sure you'll understand, uh, particularly since almost everybody I know is also having to uh, tighten their belts a little right now. But if you are being forced to stay close to home this summer, well, there's one new little spot on the web where I hope you'll want to spend a little of your time, and that is my new dig-like site for the Genesis Generation. Now, this isn't meant to uh, replace any of the forums over at thegrowreport.com. That's still the main place I go to uh, get to know the tribe. And, of course, our comment section at the Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog are always full of interesting thoughts. But I have another reason for starting yet another website. As you probably remember, uh, a couple of years ago, X one set up a nice MySpace page for us. 
and within months it was going strong. Then, one morning, when I went there, it was uh, all gone. <laughs> I'd uh, essentially been disappeared by the MySpace sensors. So all of the work that went into that effort was wasted. Now, today, a lot of saloners are going to Facebook and uh, finding the people who have joined the Fans of Lorenzo page that Tom Barbelay set up for us. And uh, gradually, more and more saloners are uh, finding the others who live nearby through uh, little connections like that. But I have this sinking feeling that one day the Facebook people might do the same thing to us that the MySpace goons did and uh, just delete me. So the purpose of this new site is to uh, give us a place that has no advertising whatsoever, not even those ubiquitous uh, Google ads. This is a private site and uh, no one can take it away from us. Now if you use Dig, you already know that you can form groups of your friends and uh, these groups can be public or private. You can set them up for yourself, and uh, you don't have any webmaster help required to get it going. Now, it's probably going to take a, a few years for this to grow into a place that you visit regularly, but I wanted to move the discussion of the uh, wide range of topics that I covered in my novel to uh, its own site and uh, not clutter up the other established discussion boards. So, if you'd like to join us, uh, all you need to do is surf over to www.genesisgeneration, that's all one word, genesisgeneration.us.us, and uh, click on the Genesis Generation Salon link. From there, uh, you may have a little learning curve if you've never used DIG, but it isn't all that complicated, and uh, I think that in time you'll find it to be a good place to uh, more or less keep your own list of web pages that interest you. And uh, hopefully they'll be of interest to some other saloners and uh, that you can get your own private conversations going about some of the topics that we find so interesting here in the salon. Well, as you can see, I'm running out of steam because uh, I've got a lot of packing to do. And so I'll be leaving you now for a few weeks. And uh, if all goes according to plan, we'll be back together here in the salon again around the middle of August. Until then, uh, I hope you're having a joyous summer. And uh, if you're able to make it to the Oracle Gathering on the 31st, uh, be sure to come up and introduce yourself. Don't be shy. Uh, after all, the main reason I'm going is to uh, be there to meet as many of our fellow saloners as possible. Well, that's going to do it for now. And so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, don't forget to surf over to genesisgeneration.us and uh, say hello. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>